Our scripture readings this evening are Matthew 18, 21 through 35, and then Colossians 3, 12 through 17. We're going to be looking at the topic of forgiveness this evening, and we'll be doing that mostly in the light of the passage in Matthew. So Matthew 18, beginning at verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Peter, uh, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven shall be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what he had, what had taken place, his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant? As I had mercy on you, and in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Turning now to Colossians chapter 3. And we'll read once again the verses... 12 through 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. So our our subject this evening is forgiveness. We're working our way through these character traits that Paul 
is telling the Colossians to put on in chapter 3 of his epistle to the Colossians. The instruction here flows from the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. One author that I read recently expressed this in a striking way by saying, quote, Paul's listeners are to live as resurrection people in a world of death. Paul's listeners are to live as resurrection people in a world of death. That certainly gets at the gospel call to living the Christian life. In the first part of chapter 3, Paul had reminded the Colossians that they had been raised with Christ. Christians share in Christ's resurrection. They have received eternal life. And so it is our calling to live as resurrected people, as resurrection people in a world of death. Unbelievers are dead in their sins. Believers are alive in Christ. And the Christian life is about demonstrating to the world that what, true, what truly being alive looks like. So we're to put on compassionate hearts and kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We are to bear with one another. And Paul continues in verse 13, if, anyone, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you, must, so you also must forgive. The command for Christians to forgive those who have sinned against them stands out in Scripture. It stands out by how much it is emphasized. It stands out in that almost every time it is mentioned, it is tied to God's forgiveness of us. And it stands out because many times when it is mentioned, it comes with the warning that if we do not forgive those who have sinned against us, God will not forgive us. So clearly, this is really, really important to God, that those whom he has forgiven for sinning against him forgive people who have sinned against them. And the reason, as we shall see, is that if we are not willing to forgive others, who have sinned against us, we do not value God's forgiveness of us in Christ. An unwillingness to forgive others is a sure sign that we do not understand how sinful we are and what a wonderful thing it is that God has forgiven us. And so Paul tells us, if anyone has a complaint against another, we must forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven us, so we must also forgive. And we're going to look at this through, uh, by looking at Jesus' parable in Matthew 18, because it is such a powerful and clear treatment of this whole subject. The parable is occasioned by a question from Peter, Matthew 18, 21. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? So Peter seems to have understood how important it is for followers of Jesus to forgive those who have sinned against them. And he realizes that once is not good enough. That you would forgive a person once and then if he would sin against you, you're free to get your revenge. 
Peter realizes that that will not do, that you need to keep on forgiving a person who repeatedly sins against you, but surely he thinks there must be a limit. And so he wonders if perhaps forgiving a person seven times is enough. Jesus answers basically that there is no limit. Matthew 18, 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. That's a very big number. And by it, Jesus is saying that there is no limit to how many times we must forgive a person who sins against us. He is certainly not saying that we have to keep careful track. And as soon as the number gets to 78, we are free to exact our revenge. Jesus is saying there's no limit. There are no limits to the number of times that we are to forgive someone who sins against us repeatedly. Now, to understand this, we need to understand precisely what forgiveness is and how it relates to other things like justice and like protecting yourself from harm. In the section before us, in Matthew 18, Jesus gives instruction about what to do if someone sins against you. All right, the, the section that comes before this parable in Matthew 18, Jesus gives instruction about what to do if someone sins against you. So there is a place for calling people to repentance. And if that does not work, getting a few others involved. And if that does not work, getting the church involved. Whatever forgiveness means, it does not mean that you just have to take it over and over and over again. So it's important that we understand what forgiveness is and how it fits with confronting the sinner, calling him to repentance, and so on. So more of that later. Jesus' parable powerfully teaches why forgiveness is so important and helps us to understand what forgiveness is as well. So he tells the story of a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. One of those servants owed 10,000 talents. That is an astronomical debt, a debt that could never, ever be repaid. The footnote in the, in I, in the ESV says that one talent was worth about 20 years' wages for a laborer. So 10,000 talents would take 200,000 years to make enough to make that much money. Jesus' point is that the debt that the servant owed the king was way beyond what he could ever pay. It was so huge it wasn't even close to being payable. There was no way that that debt could ever, ever be repaid. And so the king decides to sell the man, the wife, the kids, everybody, all his goods, until the full amount was paid. And since the debt was so huge, it would never be paid. It meant that they would be slaves forever. The man begs for mercy. We're told that out of pity... Uh, for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. And the point, of course, is obviously that this is what forgiveness of sin is like. It's an obvious picture of how God forgives sinners. The debt that we owe to God because of our sin is so vast that we could never, ever repay it. 
It gives us a sense of how serious our sins are and what an amazing thing it is that God forgives our sins. But then the story continues. The man who had just received such an incalculable mercy from the king turns around, seeks out a fellow servant who owes him a hundred denarii and insists that the man pays up. The second servant pleads for mercy the same way the first servant had done, but the first servant showed no mercy. Verse 30, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay his debt. Now, this smaller debt, the 100 denarii, it was much, much, much smaller than the 10,000 talents, but it was still substantial. A denarius is about a, a, a day's wage for a labor, so the amount owed would take 100 days work, 100 days of work to earn. So that's a substantial debt. And that's an important point when we <coughs> apply it to forgiveness. But the main point of the parable is the contrast between the astronomical debt that the king forgave the first servant and the, the smaller but still substantial debt that the first servant was not willing to forgive. Now, this story is meant to make us feel indignant. The story is intended to make us feel outraged at the fact that the great mercy shown to the first servant did not incline him to show mercy to the man who owed him so much less. We're meant to feel a very strong reaction of disgust toward the unmerciful servant. It's profoundly disturbing that the incredible grace that had been shown to him did not change him, did not motivate him to show grace to the one who owed him a tiny fraction of what he had owed the king. The servants of the, the fellow servants in the story who witness the unmerciful spirit of the servant who had been forgiven the 10,000 talents, they are greatly distressed. They tell the king what has happened. The king is very angry. He summons the servant, calls him a wicked servant, throws him in jail until he should pay all his debt. And then Jesus makes the application of the story, verse 35, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It's a very powerful story. It's powerful because it, it, it causes us to feel that strong indignation against the unmerciful servant. And the strong reaction that we feel helps us to understand how terrible it is if we have an unforgiving spirit after God has given us so much. The point is that receiving such great forgiveness from God for our sins should affect us deeply, change us, so that we will now be inclined to reflect God's merciful spirit when it comes to dealing with people who have sinned against us. It's easy to see from Jesus' parable how awful it is when we who have been forgiven so much are not willing to forgive others a much smaller debt. And this gets at right at the heart at the experience of forgiveness. 
If we understand the enormity of what God has forgiven us, it will change us profoundly. And if we are not changed profoundly, we have not understood the enormity of our debt to God because of our sins and the magnitude of God's mercy in forgiving us. That's a really important insight from Jesus' parable. The unmerciful servant's heart was not softened by the loving mercy that had been shown to him. He was not overwhelmed by the mercy that had been shown to him. He did not see how the mercy shown to him obligated him to show similar mercy to others. So he was not humbled by the vastness of his debt and the incredible compassion that had been shown to him. Ultimately, then, he did not really perceive the enormity of his debt and the enormity of the king's compassion, which means that he took it for granted. The unmerciful servant, by being unmerciful, showed that he did not rightly value the mercy that had been shown to him. If we are not willing to forgive others who sinned against us, it shows that we do not see how massive our predicament is because of our sins. It means that we are not thankful. It means that we have not been humbled before God. It means that we count God's forgiveness a small thing. It means that it has not affected us very deeply. It is a devaluing of what Jesus gave for us on the cross. If we understand that our sins are like the 10,000 talents of debt and the unspeakable love and mercy and forgiveness, it will profoundly change us so that we will look at the sins of others against us in a completely different way. And we will feel the weight of our moral obligation to extend the same kind of mercy to others. These thoughts highlight the the wonder of the grace of God in the gospel. Jesus' parable helps us to see how amazing God's forgiveness of our sins really is. It is beyond anything that we could ever expect or imagine once we understand the, 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 the magnitude of the significance of our guilt. There's no way we could ever make up for it. There's no way we could ever suffer enough to pay the penalty for our sins and then God comes along and just forgives them and treats us as if we had never sinned. And he does that by suffering in our place in Jesus. He does that by paying the debt himself at great cost to himself. The biblical teaching on the necessity of forgiving others is rooted in the very heart of the gospel. And that is why it's such a prominent theme in the New Testament. So Jesus' parable shows a profound connection between God's forgiveness of us and our obligation to forgive those who have sinned against us. It helps us to understand why God will not forgive us if we are not willing to forgive those who sin against us. Because it shows, it shows us that if we are not willing to forgive those who sin against us, we haven't got a clue about the wonder of God forgiving us. Jesus' parable also helps us understand what forgiveness is. It is the releasing of a debt. In illustrating the nature of forgiveness, Jesus uses the idea of releasing a person 
from a debt. So when a person sins against us, they have incurred a debt. This is a matter of justice. Sin incurs a debt. Justice demands that sin be punished. This principle is expressed in the Old Testament as an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. The punishment must fit the crime. <clears throat> now, God's way of dealing with this principle of judgment in, of justice in human society is by administering justice himself, partly through the state and ultimately in the final judgment. And the main point when it comes to justice and judgment is we are never to administer justice ourselves. Paul writes in Romans 12, 19, Behold, our beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So justice is about payback. If someone has sinned against us, it is not up to us to make them pay. God does that, either through the state, if it's something serious and big and worthy of the state's involvement, or at the final judgment, or both. When a person sins against us, they incur a debt, but dealing with that debt is God's business and not ours. But this idea of debt in the light of Jesus' parable does highlight the fact that we can be significantly wronged when someone sins against us. Many times a sin can be against us can be minor, but Jesus' parable makes the point that it can also be substantial. The debt that the second servant owed the first servant was a substantial debt. 100 days of work for a laborer. Sometimes a debt incurred by a person who sins against us is a substantial debt. There are small things that must be forgiven, but there are also big things. People can sin against us in small ways, but also in big ways. Big sins will be harder to forgive. But Jesus makes it clear that big sins must be forgiven as well as little sins. The debt owed by the, in the parable by the second servant to the first servant was a substantial debt. And that is what Jesus is using to illustrate the necessity of forgiving those who sin against us. So Jesus' parable also teaches that the, the core of forgiveness is forgiving the debt. And so it is not seeking to make the person pay. It is not seeking vengeance. It is not punishing the other person. Our natural uh, sinful reaction to being sinned against is to get even. That's a justice concept, to get even, to retaliate, to make the person pay, to make the person suffer. And forgiveness is leaving that part up to the Lord. Now, it's important that we understand that this does not mean that if a person owes us one-third of a year's worth of wages and decides not to pay it, that we just have to let that go. Interpreting parables, we need to make sure we understand the point and not to stress the details that go beyond the uh, intent of the parable. 
In the parable, Jesus is talking about the forgiveness of sins. 10,000 talents is a symbol of what we owe God because of our sin. And 100 denarii is a symbol of the debt that is the result of someone sinning against us. Forgiveness means that we do not make the person pay for his sin, but it does not mean Forgiveness does not mean that we just ignore the sin and not bother with our own interests in the matter. Let's say that we sold a fellow believer a used car, and he took the car but refused to pay. According to Jesus, in the paragraph just before the parable of the unforgiving servant, we should confront that person. We should seek to get the person to repent of his sin. That is for his own good, but it's also for our own good. And if the person repents, we accept that and do not seek to punish him by refusing to have a relationship with him or by being bitter against him or in other ways. We should be ready to be reconciled. We should not hold what he has done against him. If the person does not repent, Jesus tells us first to involve a few others, And if that doesn't work, to involve the leaders of the church. And if that does not work, the church must excommunicate that person. But even then, there must be forgiveness in the sense of seeking repentance and not vengeance. If a person sins against us and is not willing to repent, we're still to forgive him and that we are to be open to reconciliation if he will repent. And we're not to seek to make him pay. We're not to punish him. Even if a person is not willing to repent, we are still to seek his well-being rather than seeking to hurt him, to get revenge. So the heart of forgiveness is canceling a debt. It means not holding the person's sin against them, not seeking to make them pay, but moving toward the person in love, seeking reconciliation. Now, Timothy Lane has written one of those little booklets put out by the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation on forgiveness. It's called Forgiving Others. It's a very helpful explanation of what it means to cancel a debt by forgiving someone who has sinned against you. He says that forgiving someone means making a threefold promise. One I will not bring up this offense again or use it against you. Two, I will not gossip or malign you because of this offense. And three, I will not dwell on this offense. That's helpful in that it it helps us to understand more practically what it means to forgive someone. Not bringing it up, not using it against the person, not gossiping or maligning the person, not dwelling on the offense. Now, in explaining these points, he makes it clear that there are cases where it may be necessary to bring up the offense if it's for a good reason, if it's for reconciliation, if it's for repentance, but never for vengeance, never to hurt the other person. So if it is brought up, it is motivated by love and a desire for healing rather than hatred, or bitterness. So let's think of an example. Let's say you're, you have a, a conversation with a friend and you reveal something about yourself which is sensitive and personal and humbling. Let's say it's a secret sin and you're asking for prayer and accountability. You make it clear that this has been told 
in confidence. And then you hear that your friend has broken your confidence. It's told a number of people your secret, your sin, your, your, your friend has sinned against you. What does forgiveness look like? Well, it'd certainly be appropriate to confront your friend with his or her sin against you. Seek an acknowledgement of the sin and an apology. The goal of such a confrontation would be repentance and restoration of the relationship. Forgiveness would mean canceling the debt, not bringing it up again, not seeking some kind of payback or punishment. It would mean not speaking to others about it in gossip. It would mean not dwelling on it and not nursing resentment. Let's consider another example. A husband commits adultery against his wife. What does forgiveness look like in that situation? Well, she may seek divorce in that situation, according to Jesus' teaching. Forgiveness in the case of adultery does not mean that the marriage must be saved. But even then, she is not to seek revenge. She must not bring up the offense in destructive ways. Not gossip about it to other people, not dwell on it for the rest of her life. Now, this example highlights the fact that forgiveness will take time when the sin is as devastating as adultery. Tim Lane, in the book that I just mentioned, he makes a point that forgiveness is both an event and a process. <clears throat> we have to understand, of course, that forgiving people who have hurt us is always difficult. And in something as devastating as adultery, it is excruciatingly difficult. The call to forgive applies to horrific sins as well as relatively minor sins. And the difficulty and need for supernatural grace must be understood. So the idea of forgiveness as both an event and a process is helpful. Now, thankfully, most of the time, <clears throat> the sins that we must forgive are not so devastating. Much of the time in regular congregational life, forgiveness will mean showing love by covering, amount, uh, covering a multitude of sins and overlooking an offense. Since sin is mixed with all that we do, it is mixed with all our interactions with one another. And if we confronted each other for every offense, every offense the, the church would be a very unpleasant place. But as we have seen, there's also, there are also sins that must be confronted, and forgiveness is a vital part of dealing with those as well. And all our interactions with one another. We are to seek each other's true well-being in the light of eternity, and forgiving one another is an important part of that. But it's hard. No question that forgiveness is hard. Forgiveness is not something that comes easy to any of us, but it is at the heart of the life that Jesus died and rose again to give us. The command to forgive those who have sinned against us is very prominent in the New Testament, and much of the time it is motivated by the truth that God has forgiven us 
And it is motivated by the warning that if we do not forgive others, God will not forgive us. It's therefore a very serious matter and one that is at the very heart of our experience of the gospel. So let's consider our relationships and consider whether there are people who have sinned against us whom we have not forgiven. Let's consider where there are any who sins against, uh, who have sinned against us and we are holding those sins against them. Are there those whose offenses we continue to bring up, to gossip about, or to dwell upon? Jesus' parable puts the whole matter of forgiveness into perspective. It teaches us that It teaches us what we need to dwell on in order to be able to forgive others. We need to dwell on our debt to God, the 10,000 talents, and how graciously God in Christ has forgiven us. We need to dwell on that when we struggle to forgive others. We need to think of how outrageous it was that the first servant was unwilling to forgive his fellow servant after the king had been so gracious toward him. That really is the key to this whole matter of forgiving others. If God has forgiven us so much, how can we not extend the same forgiveness to others when their sins against us are so much smaller than our sins against God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your amazing grace to us, for the extent of your mercy. We thank you for this parable that gives us some insight. By using that that, um, extreme example of 10,000 talents, 20,000 years worth of work, and we know, Lord, that, uh, that our sins against you are infinite. And yet you have forgiven them freely in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that we may, we may be profoundly affected by that, that we may not take it for granted, that it may uh, affect the way we think about the sins of others and particularly those who have sinned against us. Help us to feel the weight of this parable, the weight of the exhortation to forgive others, the weight of the warning that comes along with it. But Lord, we pray that you would especially help us to, to dwell on the wonder of your grace to us so that we may be humbled so that we may be thankful and moved at your grace to us. And so that all of that may be part of the way that you enable us to forgive others. Lord, we we pray that you would help us to, to be faithful to you also in this area. And if we are struggling with this connection with a relationship, Lord, help us. Help us to 
ponder these things, to see them in the light of the gospel, to see them in the light of what forgiveness really is, and to extend that forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.